invite you to take your uh, order of worship and turn to page 7. We're going to start uh, officially with our study of Galatians this morning. We kind of laid the groundwork last week uh, looking at the people associated with this. Now we're going to start with Galatians 1 and we'll work through our verse 5 of the first chapter. Let's give attention to God's word. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray and ask him to give us some guidance this morning. Father, as I've been praying all week, that we would sit under the waterfall of your grace this morning. So I pray you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. So our Old Testament reading was the story of Mephibosheth. Great job, Mac, with some very difficult words there. We asked our pastoral interns to read that. and want to put that pressure on you guys. So Mac and Luke are reading those passages this morning. Uh, it's one of the best examples biblically. Mark said it's the first sermon that he preached in this sanctuary. Uh, my friend Shane and Danville says it's his favorite passage of the Bible because it is one of the best examples of grace. You see, you have King David desiring to give and bring restoration and healing to the household of Saul, his predecessor. Saul was a wicked king, sought to destroy and kill David. But in the passage we read, instead of vengeance, instead of cruelty, David chose to show Saul's household grace. Mephibosheth could offer nothing to David and his kingdom. He was the grandson of David's enemy. He was the reminder to God's people of a troubled reign of King Saul, and he was lame in both feet. Both feet. Yet year after year, day after day, he ate at the king's table. This is graced at its finest undeserved favor. This morning, I want us to align ourselves with Mephibosheth and receive the king's grace. One of my favorite things in the world to do is to take long, hot showers. Maybe this is because in my college basketball days, we had a locker room shower that had the water pressure equivalent of Niagara Falls uh, and was hot on endless repeat. So after practice, I would stand there for hours. My kids, to my own hip hypocritical shame, have taken this legacy too. And we've had to upgrade our hot water heater uh, because of this. And my repeated frame around my household is, God wants his ocean back uh, after they've taken a long hot shower. Such the hypocrite that I am, because I love them. But I thought about this as I prayed about this sermon. I want us to take a long, soothing hot shower under the powerful flow of God's grace. Perhaps it's been a long time since you've just sat and contemplated God's grace in Christ for you. So this morning, imagine you've just come from a good workout, a great yoga class, or a long grass cutting, and it's just time to sit under the steaming hot shower of the just right water pressure of God's grace and let his grace soothe your aching spiritual muscles. Perhaps you may say to me, Will, you don't know what I've done recently. 
and sitting under the grace of God feels inappropriate until I get some things straightened out. Several years ago on one of our campuses, I had a student say that very exact same thing to me. He said, well, I, I want to accept God's grace and forgiveness, but my life is a wreck and I need to get some things figured out first. And I said to him, I said, Kevin, did you shower this morning? He said, yeah. I said, did you first get in the bathtub before you got in the shower? He said, no, that'd be silly. That's right. He said, why would that be silly? Because the purpose of the shower is to clean you. I said, so you don't come to Jesus after you've cleaned yourself up. You come to Jesus because he cleans you. So maybe that's you this morning needing to sit under the grace of God. Paul's letter to the Galatians is a long defense of why adding anything, particularly works of righteousness to the gospel is one of the greatest heresies that you can do and also one of the most harmful things you can do to your soul. But before he does that, Paul takes the first five verses just as an introduction and he paints a masterpiece of God's grace. So wherever you find yourself, the opportunity this morning is to sit under the shower of God's grace. So let's dive in. Verse one, I'm just gonna go verse by verse. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The author of this letter is Paul. As we mentioned last week, the gospel is significant not because of its theological power or its defense against heretical teachings, though it's that, but it's mainly and primarily and supremely sufficient because it's the gospel for people. People are saved, not heretical teachings. People are saved. And here, Paul is perhaps one of the most famous converts ever. Because of all people, he was the least likely to want Jesus. He was a persecutor of the church. He was against Jesus. And now he's a trophy and a mouthpiece of grace. Do you feel like you are too far gone? Your sin, your cynicism, your brokenness are too much for the grace of God? The first word of this letter should give you pause. Paul. As the great hymn, Joy to the World, says, he came to make his mercies known as far as the curse is found. The first word, the first person of this letter, indeed the author of this letter, is also one of the greatest examples of the extent and depth of God's grace. Friend, wherever you are today, wherever you think you are today, you are not outside the realm and reach of God's grace. There's a debate among scholars about when Paul actually wrote this letter. For a variety of reasons, I tend to agree with those scholars who say it was written around the earlier date of 48 AD. And one of those reasons is that Paul gives such a clear defense of his apostolic ministry. You see, Paul saw himself rightly as one of the apostles. There were many false teachers that had infected the Galatian church and were challenging Paul's authority. And so Paul writes this letter and he gives a defense. And one of his defenses, there it says, is he was sent by God not from man or through a man. This calling that he had was from God himself. This is too is an amazing grace. Not only was he a persecutor of the church, now saved by the one he was persecuting, now he's actually an ambassador, an apostle sent to preach this gospel. 
For though you and I don't have the role or function of an apostle, we must certainly have this rock-solid cosmic calling, not from men, not from a man, from God. Paul would later say, because of this confidence in Romans 8, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he was called by God, not by man or by a group of men. Friend, your calling into the grace of God is certain, not because you feel it, not because someone told you, not because you belong to a good church, not because you are so faithful and disciplined and diligent. Your calling is certain because the one who called you is faithful. Nothing can separate you from him. Paul, like you and I, were called to be Christians. Paul was called to be an apostle. You and I don't have that call, but you were called to be a Christian father, mother, teacher, businessman, doctor, whatever it is. What a calling you have because that calling comes from God. But his second defense of his apostleship is right there. This calling comes from God and, our, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who God raised from the dead. This was sort of the uh, most important apostolic proof. Had you seen the risen Jesus alive? Paul had. Very clearly on the road to Damascus, Paul encountered the risen Savior. But this could also be Paul defending the power of God and Jesus Christ to call people. In a sense, he's saying this, I'm not a Christian or an apostle because of men or through men. I'm a Christian and an apostle because God the Father called me through Jesus Christ, who, by the way, raised him from the dead. That's pretty powerful defense. If you aren't fully convinced that God has the power to call, save, and keep his people, then here's a major anchor of security. The God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same God who has called you to be his son and daughter and put his spirit inside of you. If this God has the power to raise the dead, what is he not able to do for you? Let me spend just a second here reflecting on this. You see, the, 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 the role of apostle was one of sort of a, uh, an ambassador for Jesus, uh, uh, a mouthpiece. Uh, like, like we think about an ambassador for the U.S. today. I've spent a lot of time overseas. Knowing where the U.S. embassy is in that country is a valuable asset to know. If there's ever a problem, I can go to the U.S. embassy because there I'm safe. I'm protected by the sovereignty of the United States at that embassy. The ambassador is as if the U.S leadership was there itself. Throughout scripture, there's these same kind of notions. The apostles were one of those, as if the king himself was sending his messengers, the apostles. But have you ever thought about this? In the very beginning of the Bible, the Bible, God says that he created man and woman, man and woman in his image. You and I, before we are anything else, we are image bearers. What does that mean? Well, the best example I've ever come across, and some of you get tired of hearing me say this, but I'll say it again, it's a great picture. I love to walk out in the mountains early in the morning and walk up to a pond that's undisturbed yet by the day and see the reflection of the mountains on that water. You got the picture in your mind? It's, it's beautiful. But what do your eyes inevitably do when you see that reflection? They go to the original. That's image bearing. The role of the image on the water is to draw our awe and attention to the original. 
Friend, you and I are called image bearers of God. When the world looks at us, we are to reflect him. Their eyes are to give glory to him. But also in that Genesis passage, not only are we image bearers, but he says we've been given dominion. It's a regal word, a word of authority, a word of rule, that we were to rule and give dominion to the garden. See, God said to Adam and Eve, I'm a king and I'm a creator. I am giving this role to you. One of the words that, that is closely to this in our, in our language is the word viceroy. Some of us may know what a viceroy is, but when a king in a foreign land wants to send its agent to another land, he sends a viceroy. And one of the best lines of my favorite movie, which is Braveheart, uh, Edward the Longshanks, the, the king of England, set, after, after some of his viceroys were killed, says an attack on the king's men is an attack on the king himself. That's how significant the viceroy was. And in Genesis 1, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, said to you and I, you are my viceroys on the earth. Rule and subdue the earth. Bring it under my loving care. Why am I saying all this? You know two of the most powerful things Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection? The scriptures say that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of his nature. He is the second Adam. And Paul said any man that is in Christ is a new creation. The broken and marred image has now been healed and restored. What sin brought havoc to in your image bearing, Christ restored so that you now will reflect the glory of God once again. Secondly, Christ came and brought dominion and authority back to the earth. He did this by healing the sick, restoring the lame. He did this by confronting the devil in the wilderness. But most importantly, he did this disarming the authorities and spiritual forces by triumphing over them on the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent and sought, who sought to rule the world. And now the scriptures say that anyone who is in Christ is a kingdom and priest to our God and you will reign on the earth. See, the calling of God is no small thing because when he calls you, he restores you to everything he intends you to be. An image bearer, a king and queen of Narnia. What a calling. Friend, I share this to say your calling is significant this morning and it's a call to grace. You were not called by men or through a man. You were called through Jesus Christ by God, the Father who raised him from Verse 2. That's all just verse 1, right? Verse 2. He's writing with all the brothers who are with him to the churches of Galatia. It's not real clear who the brothers are, but it's probably those brothers from Antioch, potentially some of the ones we mentioned last week. Regardless, what we ought to see here is Paul was never alone. He always had a band of brothers with him as he traveled and wrote. The point here is that Paul had full support and agreement of the larger church. Paul was the spokesman, but the church was speaking in this letter. And this letter was written to a, a locale called Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And it's a large area. Uh, Luke tells us in Acts 14 that the major cities were Derbe and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch of Syria. It is thought by the scholars that this letter would have circulated to all of those major cities, that the churches of Galatia in that region, like the churches of the bluegrass, if you will. Verse 3, 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's atypical greeting. This is what he mostly said. But what follows is never typical. He, but this is how he always launches. Notice the relationally unifying and authoritative language of grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. First he says, God our Father. He intentionally aligns himself as a brother to the men and women in, in the Galatian church. Not as one superior to them, even though he had a apostolic authority, he aligns himself as a brother. This is tremendous for many of us, particularly those of us who have been uh, pained by our fathers, to hear him say that God, our Father, is sending this message to you is a very encouraging, familial um, notion. We are brothers and sisters with God as our Father. But the second thing he says is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we have a Father, we have a Master, a Lord who exercises authority over us and over the creation. That, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he has risen from the dead and therefore has authority over everything including death. Paul says, this is who he's writing from and to. Now, verse four and five. This is what's unique to the book of Galatians in the greeting. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of, our, of God our Father, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul starts to open his defense of this letter by describing who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done. First he says he gave himself for our sins. The cross of Jesus Christ is where he gave himself. Jesus told his disciples, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, into your, uh, into your hands, I yield or surrender my spirit. Why did Jesus willingly do this? Jesus willingly gave up himself. Paul says, for your sins. The penalty for sin was death. This was declared long ago and in many ways. As Paul would say later in Galatians, Jesus suffered the curse of being hung on a tree to remove the curse of sin from his people. Friends, this is truly amazing grace. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, willingly and freely chose to give himself up for you. Do you remember at his trial with Pilate? He said, listen, listen, buddy, I could have a legion of the special forces of heaven called angels to come down right now and deliver me. And you know who would have suffered the most from that heavenly attack on the earth? Me and you, because he never would have gone to the cross. And you and I would still be in our sins. But Jesus, in an unbelievable restraint of power, chose ultimate power, overcoming sin and death, by choosing not to bring the special forces onto a small little nation called Rome or Jerusalem, but instead to go and attack the cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly realms, triumphing over them with his death on the cross. He did that by his own choice for you and for me, for your sins. Think about this. The sin of selfishness that led you and your spouse or your roommate or children to fight this morning before church has been forgiven freely on the cross that Jesus chose. The sin of gluttony that led you to eat or drink too much last night 
has been forgiven freely on the cross that Jesus chose. The sin of lust that led you to engage in acts of shame and sensuality has been forgiven freely on the cross that Jesus chose. The sin of greed that has led you to cheat and manipulate others for a financial gain has been forgiven freely on the cross that Jesus chose. The sin of pride that led you this week to be defensive toward the feedback of your boss or your spouse or your friends has been freely forgiven on the cross that Jesus chose. On and on we could go. Name the sin, friend. Bring it to light. Jesus chose to go to the cross for that sin. And then he says to rescue us from this present evil age. Wow, what a phrase. If I can get a little bit academic here, because it matters. The word here is rescue or deliver. And the verb tense for this is what's called the aorist middle subjunctive. I'm gonna hold up with that. Here's how the, there's actually a website called uh, Greek for uh, layman. (laughs) I, Greek for dummies. This is what it says about the aorist middle subjunctive voice. It is an action without history or continuation, a pure form, a definitive outcome that will happen as a result of another stated action. Here's what it means. The stated action is your sins have been forgiven by the free offering of Christ on the cross. He gave himself for you. What does that mean in the aorist tense that you are delivered? The result, every time you face this present evil age, you will be rescued and delivered. Every time. It's not, it's not like this referring to a by and by one day will you be delivered. That's true. And it's not some historical thing that you have to try to muster up access to. It is an, it, the verb choice here by Paul is right now, every single moment that you experience this present age, you have access to the power to overcome it because Christ has gone to the cross. Amen. You have been delivered from this present evil age. You are not responsible to, to its to its uh, ways and thoughts. We have been delivered from this. Another way of saying this biblically is you, friend, are holy. You are set apart. You may not act holy. You may not feel holy, but make no mistake about it. What Jesus did on the cross was make for himself a people of holiness set apart from this present evil age. Friend, you are holy. This is amazing. What sort of guarantee do we have? What sort of confidence do we have that we will be rescued from this evil age? What sort of confidence do I have that the sins are forgiven? What sort of confidence uh, do we have that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead? Am I really set apart? Notice how he ends this verse. According to the will of our God and Father. How can you be certain? God willed it. He's faithful. He's true. He does not lie. This is overwhelming. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you his grace. He is not reluctant. He is not waiting around for you to get your life together. He is patient and long-suffering. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Your access to the power to be delivered from this present evil age does not reside in your will or your actions or your faithfulness. It lies in the heart of your Father in heaven. His heart is for you. His heart is full of love and grace. And then Paul gives the final declaration at the end of this teaching. 
because he's getting ready to ask them some hard questions about what's going on. But he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Exclamation mark in, in our English translation. It's an emphatic declaration. Isn't this so fitting? Who gets the glory in this amazing grace? God does. Glorious splendor, beauty, radiance, brightness. God gets this. How, how does he get it? Forever and ever. A continuum of time with no beginning and no end. Can you tell me where forever starts? Can you tell me where forever ends? No, you can't. God, the God gets the glory forever and ever. In fact, the, the, the prophets would say, your sins have been so far removed, they're as far as the east is from the west. Where does the east start? And where does the west begin? Have you ever thought about that? If I start going east, do I ever go west? Oh, I just keep going east. Or if I go west, I just keep going west. That's how far you made your sins from you. As far as the east is from the west. Forevermore. This glory is his. And then he finishes by saying, amen. The Greek word means, so let it be. Jesus would use this Greek word, amen, when he wanted to have a powerful teaching in his gospels. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, amen, I say to you. In a sense, he's saying, hey, listen up. What I'm getting ready to tell you is true truth. Listen to me. Paul says here, your sins have been forgiven. You have deliverance over the present evil age. God will get glory forever and ever. It is true truth. So let it be. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their amen in Christ. The last verse of the Bible, Revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, uh, be with God's people. Amen. And whenever you utter the amen, you are saying, so let it be. And Paul is saying, before he starts talking to the Galatians about how they've perverted the gospel, he says, the gospel by itself is one of free grace given by God with his authority, with his resurrection power, triumphing over the evil age on the cross. So let it be. End of story. Don't add anything to it. It is sufficient. Bathe underneath that shower. So, as we come to this table that Jesus lays out before us each week, this is a table of grace. The beginning I mentioned that I often say to my kids as they're draining our hot water heater with long showers, you know, I said, God wants his ocean back, which is sort of a foolish statement, as if one long shower in Lexington, Kentucky could ever drain the ocean dry, right? But isn't this how we think of sometimes about God's grace? I've been sinning too long. There I go again with the same sin over and over. Surely I've drained the ocean of God's grace dry. Nope. Can't do it. His grace is an eternal shower that will never run cold, that will never run dry, and will always satisfy. So this morning, friend, stand underneath the shower of God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For this beginning of Paul's letter. And as we'll learn over the next weeks, we as sinful human beings try to add to the gospel our own works of righteousness, our own, our own uh, self-involvement uh, in, in, in righteousness. Lord, I, I pray that right now you would set our hearts at ease and at rest, that your grace is sufficient. Help us to sit under 
the amazing grace that Jesus Christ gave us at the cross that comes from your authority as you raised him from the dead. Lord, give us grace now as we partake of this holy communion. May we bathe in the shower of your grace now. In Christ's name we pray.